Hello, everybody. This is Lyle and Joy here, and welcome to another episode of the Sustainable Jungle Podcast, where we talk to inspiring people working to future-proof our planet. Our guest today is Florence Geschwent from Chrysalex Technologies in London. You can find her at Chrysalex Tech on Twitter, or pop on over to their website. That's chrysalextechnologies.com. Florence is a PhD graduate from Imperial College in London. She's won numerous awards for her work in the use of waste wood for biorefinery applications. She was named as one of Europe's most promising game changers under 30 by Forbes. She's also one of three founders, along with Jason Hallett and Aggie Brandt, of the spin-out startup Chrysalex Technologies that's aiming to disrupt and revolutionize the fossil fuel industry by turning waste wood and other biomass into bioplastics and biofuel. We had a fascinating discussion with Florence on location at Chrysalex Technologies. We discussed a range of topics from her path to becoming a co-founder of a tech startup, the pros and cons of the bioeconomy, how Chrysalex Technologies aims to disrupt the 150-year-old petrochemical industry, her tips, tricks, hacks, and advice for scholars, students, or anyone aiming to get their own tech startup off the ground. So please enjoy this illuminating conversation with Florence Geschwent. Thanks, Florence. Thanks so much for having us. I'm very excited to be here. We're actually on location at um, Chrysalix offices at Imperial College London, uh, which is super exciting. But before we get into all of that, we're just going to start with your background, Florence. If you could tell us, where did you grow up? Where were you born? Before we get to where you are right now. Sure. So um, I'm from Switzerland, from the northwest, um, a city called Basel which is sort of the third biggest city in Switzerland. And it's also very much the chemical center of Switzerland. So it's where all the big chemical companies have their headquarters. My dad worked for um, the agrochemical industry. And um, I'm not going to say this is the only reason why, but it's probably part of the reason why I ended up studying chemistry. So um, I grew up there and um, went to university there, um, studied chemistry. And then after finishing my bachelor's degree, I am, um, I really, really wanted to get out of Switzerland. It's a beautiful country, but <laughs> I, having grown up there, I really needed a change of scenery, I think. I briefly did an internship in Poland for a few months. And after that, I was sort of looking for different opportunities to um, continue my studies, but outside of Switzerland. I was also a bit um, maybe disillusioned with chemistry. So um, I was sort of hoping to find something that is more than just pure chemistry, something a bit more applied, something where I can see how it's going to impact the world. Awesome. So I found this master's program here at Imperial College, which was called Green Chemistry, Energy and Environment. So that was what the program was called? That was what the program was called. Oh, that's awesome. That's perfect. Right down your alley. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't the only thing I applied for. um, In Sweden, I found a program called Chemistry for Renewable Energies, which I also applied for. Um, So it wasn't my only bet in that sense. Can I I just back you up there for a second? So your interest in science, was that a general progression or was there a moment that you can recall where suddenly it clicked and you thought this is it for me I think I sort of naturally always I always did really well with like maths in school and I wasn't bad at languages but I kind of like maths and science just kind of it was always so obvious for me that I don't think I ever thought of doing something else so I mean sure I wanted to be a physicist for a bit I wanted to be a dentist um, but it was always something around something scientific. Okay. Um, so at the end, I actually first thought I'd go study physics, um, but on like day one, somehow I panicked. And okay. <laughs> I went to the student registration office, and within the first two weeks, you can just change courses. So I was like, hi can I please study something else? And they were like, sure, what do you want to study? And I said chemistry. And ever since I studied chemistry. So physics to chemistry. Yeah, on day one, basically. Okay, interesting. And and, okay, so that's that's how you got into the science field. And what about sustainability, using science for that purpose? Where did that passion or interest come about? I think, um, so during my bachelor's degree, 
one of my strongest memories is how much I hated organic chemistry labs. And what really upset me was like the fact that we used so many solvents, so much, um, so many chemicals to make something that at the end actually got thrown away. So I understand that was for like teaching purposes and yeah. we were making something that no one needed and the outcome was our learning. But somehow that, that just, it, it annoyed me so much. And I think I would have felt so much better if I could have done something where fine, I learned how to do it, but it was also something useful. And I think from there came this big frustration with um, how wasteful we are and also how wasteful some of the chemical processing industry is. I see. So it was not only in your experience in the classroom, but on a broader scale, you realize how much is used and then just thrown away. Yeah. So I think that's where like the, the chemistry bit started upsetting me. And then I guess in a wider sense, um, why do we, yeah, why do we buy a throwaway plastic cup? I mean, what we really want is the drink inside, right? Most people don't buy um, a cup of coffee because they want the, the cup, right? They want the coffee. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I I just generally became a bit um, annoyed with certain things in my daily life, but also specifically with um, how the chemistry labs were run and like seeing how many liters of solvent are used to produce a tiny amount of a chemical. Now I understand that the, for example, oil and gas industry is highly optimized and there's very little waste, but for example, the pharmaceutical industry is extremely wasteful. Right. Um, Interesting. So, and but obviously it became such a passion that you, you decided to apply for a course specifically in sort of that intersection between your your chemistry and your sustainability interest yeah definitely i i sort of knew that whatever you're going to do later on it's not always going to be easy and the only thing to make it easier is if, if you know that what you're doing is actually helping yeah. someone or like wider society yeah. so for me it was really important to find something that will get me out of bed in the morning even when things were not going very well in the lab that's that's i mean the greater purpose that's fascinating okay but before we get into the the very nitty-gritty details you're a young successful scientist you've won a lot of awards uh including europe's 30 under 30 on the forbes list which is very cool um so how does that feel i guess more specifically what has that experience been like for you um i mean sometimes i you know, I, I feel like from the outside, it looks so much grander than, you know, if you're actually in it, because at the end of the day, I'm still like a really normal person that like forgets their key at home. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, um, also, especially now that, um, we're trying to actually turn this into a business. It's a very daunting task. Mm. So in a way, I'm quite grateful that there's all these recognitions because sometimes you feel really, really small um, trying to, you know, talk to investors about like several millions of pounds. And, um, and then it's nice to kind of have a bit of like an ego boost. <laughs> on the side, like, oh, have that credibility you know. as yeah. well. Yeah. I'm sure that's um, been useful for Chris Lex to yeah, have that credibility. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't, you know, I don't think of myself as like a very important person that needs you to Maintain your humble uh, yeah. standing, that's great. I mean, it's definitely, it helps your confidence in a, in a way, but um, yeah. I don't think of it too often, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah you just absolutely. want to take the right amount of confidence that's yeah. actually useful confidence and, and use that to, to help push your business forward. Yeah. Because yeah. you need confidence, right, at the yeah, end of the day to make, yeah, to make it work. Awesome. I would like to sort of switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about your passion and sustainability and your interest in that area. Obviously, we're super interested in this area uh, so we're really keen to hear more about what you think the biggest challenges are for our generation. Uh, what are the biggest problems that we need to solve? And what keeps you up at night? What do you think is the most important things for us to be worrying about? Um, I think there's probably not like one thing that is the most um, or like the biggest problem. I think in general, we need to find a way of um, living more sustainably without compromising our own 
um, quality of life and one of future generations. I guess that's just like generally the definition of sustainability, right? But yeah, we need to start learning how to get more out of the resources that we have. So rather than throwing away, for example, half of the food that we produce, we need to start, you know, actually using the stuff that we're already making rather than just increase production, for example. We need to figure out what to do with electronics at the end of their lives rather than just dumping them in a toxic lake somewhere in China. Absolutely. Um, we see you have the Fairphone, so you've obviously thought of this already. <laughs> yeah, no. Love the Fairphone. Very <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, no, I think we need to rethink a lot of the, the things that are now just done without putting any thought into it. And just because they've been done like that for 50, 100 or even 200 years is, is no excuse to continue yeah. doing it like that. Is it, is it, do you think, I mean, obviously this is, we're going to address the circular economy a bit further on in the interview, but um, is it because we viewed once upon a time the world as having this endless amount of resources, uh, designed products from that way in the beginning, but now we're starting to realize, well, actually the world's not that big? Actually, I think so. Not, not talking as like someone who's actually studied that in detail, but I think about 100 years ago or so where people had a lot less money and like... Um, you know, you couldn't just buy a different pair of jeans every other month. People were actually, people had like the end of life a lot more in mind. And I think it's now sort of like the the post-war boom that's kind of led to this um, affluent society that kind of can afford it. And I think what needs to happen is that um, we don't feel the need for it anymore. I think a lot of the times, um, especially when I speak to like my mom and her generation is like she's like oh you know a walk-in closet with all those clothes and I'm like I don't even want that so yeah I think um for for them this is kind of like you know a feeling of achievement like oh I've earned all this money and now I can buy all these things well I think we need to yeah start decoupling um ownership from feeling good about absolutely your, your achievements mm. so and then that feeds back into um, how products are designed but also how they are marketed so do you sell the product or do you just sell the use of the product or um, do you maybe just sell the service and then if you don't actually sell the product then the manufacturer also has a lot more incentive to design the product in a way that it can more easily be disassembled and recycled and so a license in other words or yeah a lease of some sort, sort of yeah new business models like the boris bikes for example where yeah, exactly you right. you don't own a bike but you still get to ride a bike yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. very successful um project i believe yeah. Yeah, um sorry that was a digression joy so leading on from from sort of the challenges that we face and sort of the things that we need to do what are the most exciting solutions and most innovative things that you've seen out there that you are like, wow, that is, that's really cool? I think it comes down to these new kinds of businesses like the Fairphone, for example, that like really not only do they try to be less harmful than other technologies, but they actually actively try to um, make things better. So with them um, engaging with local communities, but also trying to make your product in a way that it, it lasts longer and like really targeting so many different aspects of the supply chain and the use and the end of life of a product. So I think, um, yeah, kind of this like holistic view of the product and not just the, the use phase of it that most people worry about usually. Yeah. So I think... Um, yeah, I think there is a lot of innovation in in these like very transparency. New, yeah. yeah, transparency, new business models, new um yeah, new ways of, of running the business by really engaging from not not even just from the beginning to the end, but sort of past the end. So like trying to see where where does this go into the next product and yeah, which leads us into circular economy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Obviously an interest of yours, given your business. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the circular economy, what the concept actually is and, and why it's exciting, why it could revolutionize the way we do things? Yeah, so um, I guess as opposed to the circular economy, most of our current economy is very linear. So it comes from a raw material that um, is 
often either um, crude oil or sort of mined minerals, metals, and um, and they're, they get extracted from the planet's crust and get put into a product, and at the end it's thrown away. So, well, for example, the, the ordinary process of manufacturing a phone, you would you would get the metal out of the ground to make the phone casing or whatever, and at the end of the life cycle, the phone would just be chucked out. Exactly. Yeah. Or perfect example, plastic bottles, right? Single exactly. use, throwaway. Yeah, made out of um, petrochemicals. Petrochemicals, right? Yeah, and unfortunately, often end up in the ocean. So, right. Yeah. Really, a big problem. Now, in a circular economy, when you make the product, you already have in mind what's going to happen to it at the end of its life, and then. Um, rather than disposing of it, you would then reuse it for something new so or even um, to make the same product again. So if it's something that, for example, paper often can be recycled many times. So um, that's an example of a relatively circular economy that's surrounding us. Unfortunately, there is very few sectors where that's been implemented. And it just feels like a no-brainer because it would mean that the inputs would be so much cheaper. Yeah, um, unfortunately, well, it's often made really hard, for example, with a phone, because um, all those metals are mixed in together, mm. and then the cost of separating is really high. Now, you can overcome that by, when you design the phone, making sure that this, the parts can actually be separated a lot more easily. Right, because right. I suppose the process to separate those components of the phone would have their own byproducts and greenhouse gas effects or carbon, whatever yeah. that may be. Is that right? So, yeah, usually there's either an energy input that needs to be accounted for or um, more often than not is actually the labor cost that is prohibitive. So another thing that I think should be done is that we should start taxing raw materials a lot more and not labor. Mm. Because then you can actually, you can sway the balance. At the moment, it's cheaper to get more raw material out of the ground than to pay someone to separate them. Right. Right, so, right. But if you start taxing not the person who's working, but the raw material that comes out of the ground, then you can, you can, can incentivize. Shift that balance. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. very interesting. That's yeah. a great idea. I'm not going to say this idea <laughs> <laughs> as my own, because um, that's definitely been proposed um, by other people. So... Um, but yeah. yeah, I think um, also now with um, a lot of automation coming up, um, I think also Bill Gates has proposed to tax robots. Well, I mean, that's it's just going to have to go that way, right? Otherwise, yeah, yeah it's going to be a really tricky. Yeah. Like, new business models, new technology, new business models, new ways of doing things. It just has yeah. to happen. Absolutely. For sure. And now... It, We've talked a little bit about bioplastics and bio-derived plastics. Not quite sure what the difference is, but it would be great to, to get stuck into that topic a little bit because uh, I noticed that you tweeted recently about the confusion around what bioplastic is and what um, and how biodegradable it is. And, for example, the use in toys, there's a lot of concern that uh, it's not safe or it's, that it can't be used. Or it, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about what bioplastics are and the difference between like to what extent they're biodegradable? Yeah, definitely. So a bioplastic is basically anything that is made from plant matter. So it can be various um, things. It can be um, your sort of biodegradable plastic bag that you get, which is usually made from starch. It can also be um, some neuroplastic cups that are usually um, a plastic called polylactic acid, which can be made from um, sugar. The thing is that all these are bioplastics, but they're not necessarily all biodegradable. But a lot of people are like, oh my God, no, they're not biodegradable. But if we think about it, some things we actually don't want to biodegrade. So for example, your, um, your garden chair, you don't want it to um, rot away as you sit on it. Um, so some things we definitely want to, to be more durable. So as it is with normal plastics, um, we can actually make bioplastics in a way that they're not biodegradable if we want them to be not biodegradable. So for example, if we had like a bottled water we could construct that bottle in a way that if it is single use and when it is thrown away it would just biodegrade over x amount of years is that right yeah okay so um there is for example a, a company that is trying to um replace um pet with a fully plant derived plastic um, which will be called pef Okay. Um, so it's chemically slightly different. It's not exactly the same as PET. That is 
um, it can be fully plant derived. Um, it will be it has some different properties than PET, and it's also slightly better degradable. So it has several advantages. There's also, for example, polylactic acid can actually, depending on how you treat it um, thermally, you can make it more degradable or less degradable. So there's loads of options there. I also know of some technologies that try to incorporate small amounts of catalysts that um, upon a trigger will start a reaction that degrades the plastic. So sometimes that's a specific temperature or, or moisture oh, wow. content. So for example, it will not biodegrade if you have it at room temperature or like normal temperatures. But once you put it in a compost, for example, it starts decomposing. Wow. So the, it's, brilliant. It's, it's triggered by the higher temperature in the compost and then it, it just goes away much, much quicker than normal plastics would. So that, I mean, that there's two parts to that. There's, you know, what, what we've been exploring is the idea of the whole zero waste, you know, like reduce as opposed to recycle. Yeah. And, and this is a, this is potentially a solution to, to the problem where most people probably won't go down the zero waste route and probably will continue their lifestyle of just, you know, yeah. using up single use plastics, but to sort of redefine the model where those single-use plastics can actually be composted or could be recycled in a more meaningful way or so that they, they do biodegrade. I mean, that's the problem that we're looking to solve here, right? Yeah. That's pretty cool. And I think also, um, obviously, behavioral change will, part, will be part of the solution, but um, if we're realistic, there's going to be instances where we can't reuse it yeah. just because... It's broken down to the point where it's unusable for whatever reason. Or yeah. people don't compost right. it. Right? Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. or you're traveling and there's just only that much that you can possibly carry with, with yeah. you. And yeah, so there's, there's definitely instances where we have to um, live with the fact that some things will be single use. And then we need to make sure that the product is appropriate for for that type of use. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. That makes complete sense. Well, I think that's a nice lead into to talking more about Chrysalix and finding out uh, exactly what it is and, and what when what you're doing with it. Can you give us a bit of an overview? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, we all started here at Imperial College. So my um, co-founders and I all have been working on that for several years now. I actually joined the team only about four years ago. So that was when some of the discoveries had already um, happened and there was already some momentum going. So I was really lucky to be able to kind of like jump on the, the bandwagon there. So we are focusing on using currently underused waste biomass um, streams. So um, our research group focuses on using, for example, agricultural residues, but also um, in the case of my PhD project, um, waste wood from the construction industry. And the aim is, sorry. I was, gonna, I was just going to ask for, just, just to clarify, biomass, can you define what, what that exactly means? Because I have a vague idea, but I don't know if it's correct. Yeah, okay, very good question. So we call biomass anything that is grown, right? So plants, algae, things like that. Um, we specifically focus on lignocellulosic biomass, um, which is the sort of non-edible biomass. So um, grasses, trees, bushes, this kind of stuff. Um, it's um, characterized by um, ma being made of um, cellulose, which is what we usually use to make paper, etc. But also um, another polymer called lignin, which is um, what gives the plant sort of the um, sturdiness, the um, heat resistance, etc. So your typical biomass is made up of those two components, cellulose and lignin. And well, there is other components. Other One is called hemicellulose, which is sort of like a um, little broader of the cellulose. And then there is some extractives. And depending on your plant species, there might be other things like waxes or um, proteins and things like that. Um, but yeah, so lignocellulosic biomass always contains cellulose, lignin, and hemicelluloses. Okay. So now, t so let, let's talk a little bit more about the inputs yeah. and, and, and continuing on the theme of biomass. So anything that is grown, you can theoretically put into this process, but mm. your focus is on the waste wood, yeah. uh, which is super interesting because uh, Lal and I read an article recently about how 
the how deforestation is quite a big issue in terms of building up biofuels out of using plant matter, uh, which sounds like it's a completely different thing to what you're working on. Can you share a bit more about what, what that article was referring to versus what yours is? Yeah, so um, at the moment, most biofuel is produced from food plants. So in the US, that's um, corn. In Brazil, that's sugarcane. And um, in other places like Southeast Asia, they use palm oil. Right. Um, in Europe, they use rapeseed. So there's um, different sources. But you, in most cases today, it's um, plants that are edible, that, are, um, that can also be produced for food. Right. The thing with producing food is that usually the requirement in terms of um, fertile soil, um, fertilizer, pesticide input, etc., is very high. And also arable land is obviously finite. Um, the world is slowly running out of fertile soil. So there's definitely a problem there. Also, if um, big areas of rainforest are converted to, um, for example, palm um, plantations, that's definitely... Um, very bad. And sometimes those biofuels that are produced in that way can have much, much higher greenhouse gas emissions than if we just use petrol or diesel in the first place. Oh, I see. So those can have an even more adverse impact than just burning fossil fuel. Yes. So, um, I mean, there's different reasons why people might still want to do it. So maybe they don't want to rely on um, oil imports from other countries. They want to create jobs locally. Also, um, it, so unfortunately, the environment is not monetized at the moment. So you don't actually have to pay for all those destructions and greenhouse gas emissions you're causing. So um, economically, it might be profitable to do that. So to basically use food grade oil crops to for. To burn, basically. Yeah. That's, oh, that's insane. Also, some, some places might have policies in place where this is actually, you know, incentivized. Wow. Not necessarily that that was the intention, but it might be an unwanted result mm. of it. Mm. So opposed to that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to not actually increase the amount of plant matter that is grown, but use it in a better way. Got it. Or... Or increase it, but in a sustainable way and not not trying to cause any deforestation. So we're really trying to focus on currently underused byproducts. So all the scraps, basically, off cuts of wood, you can just use that. Exactly. Okay. So I think one thing that I just want to circle back to, because I think we jumped ahead in your overview because we got excited about the biomass (laughs) concept. But I think what we didn't, for for the benefit of the listeners, we didn't touch on what the actual output is in your overview, which is the, the biomass can be used as an input. Your very cool process does something to it and then at the end you get an output that can be used in other parts of manufacturing value chains that could be then developed into biofuels or into bioplastics and I want to get stuck into the outputs and applications in a little sec but I just wanted to circle back and make sure that that concept was understood um, because our listeners could be confused about why we're talking about biofuels but just circling back to to waste wood Uh, so the idea is that you could, as you said, you could use either sustainable um, inputs, sustainable biomass, like for example, um, what you what you showed us in the lab earlier, which was the the the, the miscanthus grass, the miscanthus yeah. grass. Thank you. That can be <laughs> that, that can be grown sustainably in the UK even, and then used as an input. But more excitingly, you can use waste wood from construction processes where it actually costs those construction companies or other companies to try and get rid of that wood because it can't be recycled. And that's that's a huge business, right? Yes. So um, if we look at how um, other companies and technologies have been struggling, it's mainly by um, in competing with petrochemicals. And quite often, the main cost driver is what you pay for the input material. So actually for us, um, our process is very robust and very flexible. So it can tolerate even highly contaminated waste wood that otherwise people would have to pay to get rid of it. So for us, that's an incredible opportunity to harness this very low cost feedstock. And that actually allows us to operate a much more economical process. So we can then finally produce our output materials at a, a price that is 
not prohibitive for further applications that have to compete with um, the petrochemical industry, which has been optimized over the last 150 years. So people forget that, right? Yeah. This is we're the, this entire bioeconomy is now trying to compete with an industry that is so optimized and has, over the lifetime, has gotten so many subsidies as well. So often people are like, oh, but it only works because you have subsidies. And we're like, yeah, but what about all the historic subsidy that was paid to the petrochemical industry? They Absolutely. weren't that efficient on day one either, mm. but they've had a 150 years head start. So it's, um, yeah, it's exciting because you, you're basically trying to disrupt uh, an incredibly behemoth-sized industry, which is quite something. Yeah. It's also daunting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very daunting. But it has to but happen. I mean, thank, thank goodness we have people yeah, like you who are doing absolutely, it, right? It's absolutely. It's and really it just cool. it makes complete sense. Using what would otherwise be material that just goes to the landfill or incinerated uh, as a fuel source and a clean one at that. But anyway, I'll let Joy... I think you still have a few questions on this. Yeah, I do. I do. So, so waste. So back to waste wood. I, the, <laughs> the idea is that you would be able to to use the the wood that has had uh, chemicals applied to it. So paint, for example. So say a piece of wood that's had paint stuck on it. You could theoretically put that wood in, strip away the paint, and then that you that wood can be turned into cellulose, which can then be used in other things, which means that you can save those industries huge amounts of money that they would otherwise need to. I think you said something like one billion is spent today in 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 in, um, in disposal fees. Is yeah. that right? So there is unfortunately waste wood is is very poorly reported, but so from numbers from the EU and the US, we can see that there's about a hundred million tons of waste wood annually that are not recycled. And, um, how many? How much did you say? A hundred million tons. And where does that go? So in Europe, most of that goes into incineration. In the US, a lot is still just sent to landfill or just burnt in someone's backyard. So, so not only could you save the the actual the potential emissions and energy and everything to produce that wood in the first place, you could also save the incineration. Yeah. So impacts. at the moment. Especially in Europe, um, governments are getting increasingly worried about the air quality issues of, of large incinerators. Um, wood is actually not a clean of a fuel as people like to think. So if you ever sat by a chimney fire, you probably definitely yeah doesn't feel it clean. And yes. You see how black everything gets yeah. around it. So yeah, it's it's sometimes a bit over romanticized, but. Um, what is more important is that actually wood is worth so much more than than the heat it can generate if you burn it. So as a chemical raw material, it can be its it, its value is so much higher than yeah. than what you get if you just burn it. So yeah, one of our main missions is to stop people from burning wood unnecessarily. Yeah, so, that makes a lot of sense. I th I've just got a note written down here which I wanted to make sure I asked you. Competing technologies. I know we we, we watched a, um, as we said to you earlier, we watched a couple of your YouTube videos, and um, you mentioned a few other processes or companies that are somewhat advanced, even in the process of their own technologies and innovations that are kind of competing. Could you give a summary of that, Florence, and how yeah, that sort sure. of relates to yours? So um, there's. Because using food crops for fuel is um, sometimes bad for the environment, but also just not very well seen, um, there's been a large um, effort to, to move towards using these non-food crops. So there are um, some plants running, actually, that um, use agricultural residues, for example, to produce bioethanol. Um, agricultural residues are quite easily converted compared to, for example, wood. Um, so there's technologies that are definitely good enough to use this agricultural um, waste. Is this like like coffee, like, granules like and stuff straw, like that? For reed straw, okay. Or like, um, yeah, sugarcane bagasse. Got it. Or corn stover in the US. But what is much, much harder to use is wood. Um, so I guess there's a reason we build things out of wood and not out of straw. And um, the, um, but there's this huge opportunity in wood as well. So um, our technology is a lot more effective. So where a lot of other processes struggle to treat the wood in a way that it would then be usable for biofuel or bioplastic applications, um, our process 
definitely outperforms them. And what is more important is the fact that we can use this highly contaminated waste wood, which gives us a major advantage on cost. So wheat straw in Europe, for example, where it's also used as animal feed, for example, for like horses and cows, there's actually um, quite a high price tag on it. So you pay about, I don't know, 60 pounds for a ton. Um, On the other hand, people pay about 50 to 100 pounds a ton of wood that they get rid of. So that's like a big margin that we can you can make money on just taking the wood (laughs) yeah it makes a lot of sense so um i am really glad that there is that there are other technologies because it's a it's a big industry that needs to be built up so there there need to be different players doing different parts in the value chain and and it needs to start now so we're still developing and other people can't wait for us to you know finish it so it's very important that there are these other players and that the entire industry becomes more efficient as we go along and then um, we can add more value to it once we're ready so it's not like it's not like a silver bullet that's going to destroy the industry you need a lot of incremental improvements from a lot of different angles yeah definitely i think there is not there's not going to be one winner that takes it all so um and also there is you know um we we provide one piece in the chain then there needs to be someone who actually makes something from the things we produce and the the sooner they figure out how to how they do that even if it's from other inputs and not ours the better for us because then once we get to the market they will have um higher efficiencies better margins etc so Lots of opportunity in this new world. Yeah, definitely. Lots of opportunity for inspiring... The bioeconomy. Yeah, inspiring entrepreneurs to get involved. Yeah, definitely. Join into this value chain. Okay, so we've done inputs. Mm -hmm. I want to chat a little bit about the most important part of the process, which is using the ionic liquids to to pull out the pieces of value, which is mainly the cellulose. Won't labor the chemistry point too much because we're not experts, but I just want to understand a little bit about ionic liquids i understand that they are traditionally pretty expensive to produce but you figured out a way to use a a cheaper version and that's going to make the the process much more feasible yeah so ionic liquids are a relatively new class of solvents so they're basically salts that are liquid at room temperature when they were first discovered um people were like oh my god this is it right we're going to solve all our problems with that And then they realized that they're extremely expensive to make. And quite often in the process of making them, you use up so many fossil input materials like organic solvents, the raw materials themselves, purification that just like uses a lot of energy. And um, people were incredibly disillusioned. Today, there is maybe a handful of industrial applications of ionic liquids. So slowly people are picking up on it. But yeah, what is very important is that um, when trying to use an ionic liquid, and there's loads of them, so you can actually make a gazillion different ionic liquids, um, that you have to really consider all the factors from the beginning. So that not the best performing ionic liquid is actually the best one, but you have to include production and the cost of it right and this is where my co-founder jason is he's very good at this so before trying to look for the best ionic liquid he drew up the cheapest ones and then he said and now let's see if one of those works and we tested a few and surely there's better ones but the other ones are so much more expensive that even if ours only perform say 75 percent as well as the other ones we're about 50 times cheaper than right. the other ones. Right. right, okay. So, And once once used, it can be recycled lots and lots of times. Yes. Right? So the beauty of ionic liquids and one of the reasons why people got excited about them in the first place is that um, they don't evaporate. Now, to most people, that's like, uh, so what? So <laughs> 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 yep. <laughs> makes, makes sense. Uh. <laughs> so... Um, Organic solvents, they usually have boiling points well below 100 degrees Celsius. And um, even if you just leave them at room temperature, they, they'll slowly evaporate. So if you think, for example, of ethanol, if you think of like very concentrated spirit, you can smell it, right? There's this smell in the air. There's always something going from the liquid into the air. And over time, you lose things. So you lose the 
eventually if you if you leave a glass of of ethanol standing around for long enough, it'll be gone. Right. I mean, even water, right? Water evaporates, even the even though the boiling point is only a hundred degrees. Even if you let it stand at room temperature, it will be gone eventually. Yeah. With ionic liquids, that doesn't happen. Uh -huh. If you put a glass of ionic liquids here, it'll be still be here a hundred years from now. It just it doesn't evaporate. It's like if you think of table salt. If you put table salt in a glass, it's not going to go anywhere. Very cool. And um, that's incredibly important in chemical processing because quite often you need to increase the temperature to actually achieve the reactions in a reasonable time frame. But if your solvent suddenly goes into the atmosphere, then it's gone, right? So either you need to invest into very expensive equipment that somehow will condense the solvent back into its liquid form or you just need to live with the fact that you're constantly losing solvent to the atmosphere. Now that's not good because which is potentially very expensive. It's expensive. Um, it wasteful. also it's wasteful, and there's also healthy bad health effects. So quite a lot of solvents that are used in the chemical processing industry are toxic, carcinogenic. They also cause um, problems in the atmosphere. So depending on what it is, it might cause like the ozone layer to deplete or, you know, there's just, there's various reasons why we wouldn't want that to happen. So that's the beauty of the ionic liquids is we can heat them up without having to worry about it. So it doesn't explode. It doesn't catch fire. It doesn't go anywhere. Very cool. And so, so those ionic liquids, you can use lots and lots of times and they will be uh, applied, you know, in simplistic terms to the biomass to separate out the cellulose as well as the lignin, but mainly the cellulose is the most useful piece that can that you can then use as an input into other things. So yes. chat to us a little bit about what those what the, what that input could be ultimately used for. I know there's biofuels and bioplastics. So let's chat first about bioplastic because I think that's your sort of main focus area initially is what you think that could be the, the most um, useful application initially. Bioplastics are pretty expensive, I understand today. Is that right? Yeah, they're definitely more expensive at the moment than most traditional plastics. But I think the, the costs have been coming down quite a lot. So, okay. And this, this could potentially help, help bring down the cost a little bit as one of the inputs. Yes. So um, unlike for sort of petrochemically derived um, products, the input cost in bioplastics is incredibly high at the moment. So yes, focusing on using a cheaper feedstock is definitely one way of reducing the cost and then there's other um, learnings from like running the process for longer and eventually you'll you'll learn things about it you'll get more efficient so part of it is just a, a learning curve mm -hmm. like there was for other technologies like solar or wind power where um, just by deploying loads of it eventually people figure out easier ways of doing it right and the, the cost comes down but Specifically with bioplastics, there's definitely a focus on using cheaper raw materials. And this is where we come in with using this, yeah. Very cool. Waste. And, uh, and like we've already talked about, there could be all kinds of benefits of using bioplastics because we could make them biodegradable and we could you know, yeah. do, do better things with them. Um, not to mention the inputs themselves being less impact. Very exciting. And then on the biofuel piece, we talk about clean fuels. What does that actually mean? What does it mean to have a clean fuel? Well, there's always the the actual emissions from burning the fuel. So, um, like the the diesel scandal over the last few years, we've like seen that yeah. there's um, there's Oops. only that. <laughs> um, there's there's bad stuff coming out depending on on what you burn, right? So um, often because there is less contaminants in the biofuels, you can actually get them to burn in a much cleaner way. Um, but there's obviously also a lot to be said about the way it was made. So with um, extracting oil and then oil spills and bursting pipelines and all that, that's obviously a massive problem. A lot of emissions happen before the fuel is made. Yeah. Right? So it's not it's not not just at the end of the the entire it's life cycle. It's the entire life it's, cycle. It's all where of it. Yes. Yeah. And um, sometimes that's really difficult to assess because um, a lot of the input or the a lot of the effects that, that you're causing, you can't gauge very well. So, for example, with an oil spill, you can't, it's, it's difficult to put a number on the 
sort of the damage it's caused because yeah. you're not yeah. really sure how how will it pan out over the next 50 years. So sometimes that's very difficult to actually assess. It would to be like, a monster Excel model. <laughs> yeah, and um, a lot of people are trying to do that. But yeah, so there's definitely some things you need to be very careful about. And one of them is, for example, with biofuels is land use. So not using a feedstock that has loads of fertilizer input definitely makes a big difference. Right. When we say we make clean fuel, we mean we use input material that has been used before or is a waste of some process, but also that the way we produce the fuel, so taking the input material, the wood, it goes through our process. We really try to optimize our process to be as energy efficient as possible, not having any um, damaging emissions to the environment. And then the the thing that comes out and the fuel that you put in your car that that um, is also of high quality and doesn't pollute the air you breathe here in in London. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, where we already meet our pollution yeah. targets yeah. within ten days of starting the year. Yeah, I think we must have broken that by now. Hey, uh, so I yeah. saw a stat somewhere that it was something like seventy percent less CO two. Is that is that the correct stat? So at this point, for us, it's very difficult to estimate that. Right. But yes, we think. So it's definitely at least 70%. I think we can, depending on how we use our byproducts, we can even achieve net carbon neutrality. So um, one of the byproducts is lignin. And lignin at the moment, unfortunately, has very little industrial applications available to it. So in, for example, the paper industry as well, they just burn it to generate the heat for the process. Right. Now, for us, as we're still developing the technology and we want to keep things simple, we're probably also going to just burn the lignin for its heating value, so producing the heat for the process. That means we can use a very little external fossil energy input, and that means we can actually produce the output material almost without having any additional energy requirement. Super cool. That's really interesting. Love that. And then... The final question I wanted to ask you about biofuels was around solar and wind. What are your thoughts on how how each of those things fits into the broader landscape of, of energy production? I think there is definitely a lot of a big opportunity in using electric vehicles, especially in cities where um, air pollution is a massive problem, especially here in London, but also like big cities in China and India. I do think that um, it needs both. It needs electric vehicles, but also biofuels for the parts where we can't use electric vehicles. For example, the aviation industry is very unlikely to um, go electric just because the batteries would be absolutely... Too heavy? Yeah, too heavy, too big. Um, Yeah, not applicable unless someone comes up with a really, really good battery technology I haven't heard of yet. Also, heavy goods vehicles that are um, probably could maybe go hybrid, but probably not fully electric. So I think, again, it's not, there's not going to be one winner. There's going to be, and there's, yeah, there needs to be loads of different solutions all contributing. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I mean, it's going to take us a long time to get to entirely 100% renewable. So even if it's just in the meantime, for sure. Yeah, that goes back to the point about there being no silver bullet to this problem but uh, lots of different solutions and incremental improvements along the way so i have one more set of questions on just the the actual process and the the technology (laughs) itself and that's just around the byproduct so i understand that there's a few things that could come out of this process so for example if you put in uh waste wood that has been chemically treated in the past you end up with maybe some heavy metals or something at the end of it what what could happen with those byproducts um so the heavy metals we haven't really looked into potential applications just because the actual amounts are actually quite small. So especially for us still working at a, a very small scale, it's just not never there's never been enough of it to properly look at applications. Yeah. But we do envisage that um, even though it's small, it might be possible to pass the heavy metals onto a, a metal refiner and the metals then go back into various applications. So circular economy. Circular economy. <laughs> so even though some of the metals might be super toxic, there is still, you know, there's applications for everything in, in our world. So And also, especially with metals, quite often, depending on what co- sort of chemical state they're in, they're a lot less harmful than in others. So, um, yeah. 
awesome. in, in your cell phone, there's plenty of metals that in a different form would be a massive health hazard, but right. because they're in the form they're in, they're absolutely fine to use. So. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Really interesting. Okay. I think that I am, I'm through with the can heavy, I, heavy chemical question. Okay. So, <laughs> so I, mean, this, I mean, this is obviously super interesting and exciting. And I think you kind of alluded to it earlier where you said that, uh, well, your co-founders who had come up with the idea of this or using ionic liquids. How did you come up with this or, or where do you fit into this picture of chrysalix? So... I got into it because I did my PhD project on this. Now, as it goes with PhD projects, that wasn't my idea. That was the funded project. I then, so part of my PhD was funded by an organization called Climate Kick. And they are, their mission is to get more students in sort of the clean tech field to consider um, a commercial application of their technology. So, um, I actually had quite a few courses on entrepreneurship and related things during my PhD. Wow. And at some point I was like, yeah, actually, you know, the thing we do in the lab, it, it's a very sensible project. It, it all makes, you know, it makes sense. It's, it's actually going quite well. Um, for a while, the, all the experiments worked like as you'd dream of it. Um, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't happen often? Uh, I take no, it or no? No. Okay. Research quite often yeah, yeah. unfortunately goes the other way. <laughs> right. But so, doesn't prove what I wanted to prove. <laughs> so yeah, I was quite lucky with like especially at the very beginning of my PhD, everything worked. Um after that it started to become a bit more um challenging at times. But um yeah, yeah so I approached my supervisor and one of the um postdocs in a group at the time and um the postdoc she was actually the one who originally came across this discovery or like she discovered the that we can use these cheap ionic liquids to separate components in the biomass and they had so she and my supervisor had already filed two patents at that point um but just somehow the timing wasn't quite right or it didn't just no one got super excited about it right. but then um my work specifically focused on using waste wood and somehow people got really excited about using waste wood and they were like, oh, this is, you know, it's different. Everyone else was trying to do so-called second generation bioethanol from like corn stover and these things, sugarcane bagasse, like the, the US and the Brazil case, but no one was looking at waste wood. So people were like, oh, this is, you know, this is different. This is exciting. Um, so we started um, doing some customer discovery, mainly through like a program that was run here at Imperial College. And then I signed us up to like every every single program I could find that was somewhere around business idea competitions. Oh, really? And um, and we started winning prizes. Wow. So Very we're like, cool. oh, people think that's a great idea. You know, it's not it's not just some like fad. It's actually, you know, people think this is cool. So is that when it sort of hit you like, hang on? We, you know, we're winning awards now. The world is taking this seriously. We're onto something. Yeah, kind of. So, I mean, obviously scientists always think what they're doing is the best. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at some point it's like, yeah, this is, you know, other people think this is great too. So maybe there's actually a point in trying to pursue it. So um, I think, yeah, that's when we started winning all those prizes and the Forbes listing and everything. And when I didn't finally finish my PhD, which was a bit difficult towards the end because I was juggling these all these competitions and Yeah, and you're like that's that super exciting with, thing going yeah. with writing a thesis. And Gee, like, at is... the end I it was a bit yeah, challenging <laughs> at times. Yeah. But then yeah, as I was actually then finished with my PhD, we were like, well, now we've got all this money we need to do something, right? We owe it to those people who gave us the money <laughs> yeah. to actually do something. So we did incorporate as a spin-out company from Imperial College and um, have since, yeah, been running as a um, our own company. That's Very great. Cool. And so the roadmap from here, where do you see Chris Lixon two, five years, um, 10 years? Yeah, so that's a very good question. In two years' time, our goal is to have sort of a, 
our own pilot plant running. So that's a, a plant that is much smaller than an industrial size plant, but it shows all the all the process steps ideally um, in a continuous way. So it just kind of without having to you know unload buckets into each other, it just like smoothly runs and um, we would be able to use that to demonstrate the process to potential customers who are thinking of building their own version and then in five years time hopefully there'll be quite a few industrial site plants um, running around Europe maybe even around the world. And your idea is to license your process to these yeah. bigger plants. So yeah our idea is to design the plants for our customers and sell them the, the design with the license to use our technology. Very cool. So we wouldn't be the ones building and operating them, but we'd provide our customers with everything they need for it. Right. Cool. Interesting. Very cool. And, and if I could just zoom out for a second and looking at a startup and how you've gone about that, do you have any tips or tricks or any go-to resources that you could recommend Anything that's helped you along the way? Yeah, so actually, um, I guess everyone's situation is different. But nowadays, there's there's so many programs out there that support um, startups. And I think it's um, you have to find the, the right program for you. So if you really just, if you've just come up with an idea, then there's some like very um, sort of like low threshold um, competitions and programs you can enter. And... Um, Especially at universities, they, they now run, quite often they run competitions and programs for their students. So you can easily do it while you're doing your studies or your PhD. And I would recommend everyone before they quit their job and just like say, right, this is what I'm <laughs> doing now to like yeah. maybe dip their toe in it first while they still have a, a backup in case it goes wrong. Because... The, yeah, yeah, the reality is it goes wrong more often than it doesn't. So, <laughs> yeah. what's, what's the transition been like for you from a, being a scientist in a lab to now running a business? Yeah, it's been quite gradual. So, yeah, I started sort of in my second year of my PhD. And um, so I was still doing my project. I was um, still only like halfway through my PhD. And then slowly it started taking up more of my time until I, yeah, I just barely managed to finish my thesis and then um and then I kind of yeah just said fine this is it now so I think most of the time it is a very gradual transition but it can you know a business idea can happen anywhere anytime so it doesn't usually hit you when you expect it to. it's a bit like love then isn't it yeah. <laughs> so so cheesy uh, so, but, but that leading on from that um so that transition now to running this like a business. What do you what do you actually need from here to make this a successful business? What is the next steps for you? Yeah, so as in any startup, um money. Money. <laughs> money. Um no, so specifically what well, um at the moment obviously we're a very small team and as things become a bit more hectic, it's often very difficult to get everything done. So we're um definitely looking for funding, investment, um, so we can grow our team. We've also come to realize that even though we're a technical team, no one of us actually knows how to scale up a chemical process. That's a completely different thing than what you do at university. So even though it sounds a bit counterintuitive, the first person I need to hire is actually a, an engineer who can scale up, scale up a process. Scale up, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so... That's definitely one of the biggest um, challenges we're facing at the moment. The other things we obviously need is industry support. So companies that um, have an active interest in what we're doing and can actually say, yes, we believe in, in that company. And if they achieve what they're promising, then we'll buy their process. That always gives investors a lot, of, a lot more confidence that they, if they know that this is actually going to be needed and we're not just developing something that no one can use. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you've already got some investments, so that's, that, that gives investors a little bit more confidence. Yeah. Right? So at the moment, most of our money comes from grants and prices that we've won. So we right. actually ha ha have not um, taken any um, dilutive um, investment in that sense. 
So, which is lucky for us because we haven't had to give away any any shares, any shares other than um, obviously what the the university um, owns in return for the IP that right. yeah. um, we have. So, another question I wanted to ask was this very well is very likely to, to become a very, very successful enterprise. What are your thoughts on maintaining your uh, mission-driven vision without, say, compromising your values that come with big business? Uh, have you got any thoughts around that? So it is, to us, it's very important that um, we are generating value to the wider society and not just to our shareholders. And um, I think there are other companies, big companies out there that share this vision. So especially, um, and, and also some governments. So in, in Scandinavia, they're extremely big on this bioeconomy also because they just have like vast, um, vast forests that they are currently underusing. So I think there is this, definitely a space for us where we can grow without having to compromise on our values. I know that some large corporations pretend to have those values, even though they don't actually have them. But at the end of the day, if we can, if we can improve the, the products they're selling and their environmental footprint, then I think we've still achieved our mission. So yeah. I'm, for example, thinking of, of Coke bottles. So even if for Coke, it's only you know, brand value that they can say, oh, look, our bottle is made 100% from plant material, even if they actually don't really care about that, but their consumers do, then I think um, if we can enable that and actually have an impact, then that's definitely... There's a huge value there. Yeah. There is a value. That's what a I would value. really try to avoid is um, if, you know, I, we really don't want to cause environmental damage through deforestation, for example. So our focus is definitely on using underused materials at the moment that are byproducts or wastes mm -hmm. from an existing industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just Very the last cool. few questions, Florence. I realize that um, we've been going for over an hour <laughs> now. Uh, any advice to young scientists that are thinking about studying science or maybe uh, students who are in the process of looking into getting into something like this? So my advice would always be to um, just try. So as a student, when you're young and you probably don't have a family you need to care for, you don't have, you know, you've, you're already used to a very um, sort of casual lifestyle, that's, there's no better point in life to try than then because um, you're young, you've got all your options still out there. And um, yeah, if you, if you never try, you'll never know if it's going to work or not. So right. I think rather than waiting until you're 50 and then have loads of regrets, it's it's probably the best time to try when you're young. And now is when we need solutions, right? Like, yes. Yeah. Do it now. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of solutions. And I think there's too many people out there that think that one person can't change anything. And that's just, yeah, that's, that's wrong. I mean, there's Absolutely. plenty of people we see out there that change loads of things, sometimes for the worse. I mean, there's obviously yeah. um, plenty of examples of individuals who have caused massive destruction, but there's also plenty of individuals who have achieved very remarkable things. We should also not forget that often it wasn't them alone who did it, but there needs to be someone who like, you know, sits yeah. down and mm -hmm. actually starts doing stuff rather than just thinking about it. Exactly right. The perils of technology. And quickly, go to resources for young scientists, any podcasts, books, journals you could recommend? Um, I think there is, there's so many good books about different aspects of entrepreneurship. Unfortunately, I have to say that there is, I think there is no one size fits all. One really good book I've read um, recently is called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. <laughs> and it kind of explains how running a business is really hard. And one of the reasons is because there is no one solution that you can just apply. So I recommend just scouting around, maybe read that book, but also just, you know, listen wherever you can. Um, there's... Yeah, there's a lot of good advice out there, but also a lot of things that are just going to be difficult no matter what. And the only re way we can overcome them is by trying. So. Sure. Great. And I think the last point I've got here is a quote that Joy and I found. Uh, 
again when watching one of your one of your YouTube videos. But basically, <laughs> great ideas often get stuck in labs. And I think you've already answered that question about just trying, throwing your hat in the <clears throat> ring. Is there anything else you might want to add to that? Yeah, I'd say don't underestimate yeah. your own um, abilities and your own potential. There is a lot of things that seem really hard, but once you've tried it, you'll you'll see that it's actually not something that can't be overcome. And to your point earlier, there's tons of support systems and, you know, like, what is it, Climate Kick, that are <laughs> out there that are available for young scientists to sort of get their ideas out there, which yeah. is pretty cool. So I yeah, definitely suggest Googling the EIT. EIT? They have, no, so Climate Kick is part of that. They have different teams. So there's also one on raw materials. There's one on food and health. So um, a lot of technologies will fit in one of their themes. And they have a lot of support for um, young entrepreneurs and um, networks all over Europe. So it's also really good to sometimes just meet up with someone who's going through a, a similar journey and <laughs> whine a bit about how awful it is. <laughs> <laughs> so before we wrap up quickly, where can people find you? How can they keep up to date with Chrysalix and the developments? Um, so where can they invest? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we have a website. There's also a contact form there. Um, we have a Twitter handle um, at Chrysalix Tech. So yeah, follow us there. And um, yeah, if you want to get in touch, just fill in the form on our website and I promise I'll get back to you in like 48 hours. The website, it's chrysalextechnologies.com, right? Yes. Yeah, so not chrysalex.com because no. I found that doesn't go to the right place. No. <laughs> so yeah, I apologize. It's quite a, a long URL. But so make sure chrysalextechnologies.com. Exactly. Yes. Great. Thank you so much, Florence. Thank you. It's been really interesting, uh, super exciting for us, and we wish you all the best in 2018 and beyond as you take on the world. And Yeah, look forward to hearing about all the news and no doubt the huge success that will come of it. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I'm curious to see how your blog and podcast and your journey goes. Oh, so are we. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I it's mean, you're be also just at the start of a big adventure. So Yeah, That's yeah, really we very much are. Yeah, Thank you. I think we're going to be, if we can meet lots of really interesting people like you, I think we're on to a good thing. So it's going to be exciting. Well, it was great having you. Thank great. you. Thank you for having us. Hey, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this fascinating discussion with Florence. You will be able to find the show notes for this interview and others at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. If you want to know more about Florence and her team's work, drop by chrysalextechnologies.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.